Sparkin' Conversations, a podcast for electricians, hosted by an electrician. The Electrical Association is committed to keeping electricians in the know about the latest developments in the industry. Experts will be on to help answer the tough questions, talk shop, and give tips to make your jobs work. Greetings. I'd like to welcome you to another podcast presentation of Spark and Conversation by the Electrical Association. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Once again, I'd like to thank you for choosing this Electrical Association podcast for one of your sources for information for things going on in the electrical trade. I'd also like to extend our special thanks to Federated Insurance for being our sponsor and many activities of the Electrical Association they're involved in. Today's presentation features an individual who have already enlightened us on legal matters in the past. I would like to welcome Mr. Tom Revenu, a principal in the law firm of Peters, Revenu, Kappenman, and Anderson. Tom, the Minnesota State House has been a busy place. I've always wondered how the news industry, lawyers, and others uh, find time to follow and digest the immense amount of information coming out daily on the hundreds of bills that were submitted that eventually become news. How do you do it? <laughs> Mike uh, and the Electrical Association, first, thanks for having me speak uh, on this podcast. And you're right. Uh, particularly in this latest legislative session, there has been a ton of new laws and uh, the new laws that are coming out really are changing the landscape for Minnesota employers. And fortunately, we're able to keep it up to speed with what's going on because obviously quite a few trade associations, the Electrical Association and as well, have lobbyists that are watching these new bills and trying to provide comment on the new bills. And of course, the lobbyists will reach out to us as attorneys for our feedback on, on the laws and where we see some of the pitfalls as to how the language is drafted or what have you. So I would say that we're able to keep up to speed with what's going on because of the teamwork uh, involved with trade associations and the lobbyists and obviously legislators uh, and just the legal community. Okay. Well, you know, Tom, kind of adding to that comment and uh, focusing on the Electrical Association, prior to my joining this organization, I never dreamt how important it is to take care of legal business and understand what's going on and having somebody that actually has the ability to help us change laws. I, I think that's so remarkable because a lot of people kind of think, well, I'm just me, but we are an organization that does have strength in numbers and certainly makes it possible to move forward to change laws. So, Tom, changes in labor laws for the 2023 session. That's a topic I'm sure we could dominate most of a day with talking about all the proposals and changes that will affect us. So I'm aware of some of the new and change laws. So let me just throw out a few, uh, few of them and please expound on them as you see fit. And what I'm going to do, Tom, I have a list here I'm just going to read off and I, I think you probably have the same one so I'm going to put them out and you take them one at a time as you see fit so the first one was a ban on post-employment non-compete agreements I think that's interesting also statewide earned sick and safe leave a lot of people will welcome this wage disclosure protection interesting also protection for pregnant and nursing workers Another one I found interesting was a ban on employers from holding mandatory employer-sponsored captive audience meetings. 
Wow, that's that's getting right down there. Another one I think is tremendous, and that is wage protection for construction workers. And then finally, the, and I'm not necessarily it only, but finally I came up with one that I looked at that talked about impact on employers because of legally uh, or legality of recreational marijuana. I think this is going to be a real turning point in uh, Looking the other way, I hate to think of it like that, but gosh, you know, it's like alcohol's out there, now marijuana is. So, Tom, I'm going to just be real quiet for a few minutes here and let you jump in and give us your take on all these and others that you may be aware of. Sure. So, Mike, I've been practicing just shy of 30 years, and the changes that have come out of this last legislative session are game-changing for employers. And many of you may remember that when we were dealing with the COVID pandemic, there were lots of laws that were coming out and they're coming out pretty quickly. And employers, as well as their legal counsel, were essentially drinking by a fire hydrant, trying to learn all these new laws and ensure that they're compliant with what they needed to do with regard to COVID. This legislative session, These are the most changes that I have seen come out of the Minnesota legislature since I started practicing law. And frankly, the changes, as I think most of the listeners are aware, are very employee friendly. And they change uh, how employers will be doing business. And the first topic that you raised is with regard to a ban on post-employment non-compete agreements. And essentially, The way this new law is written, which will take effect July 1st, it essentially will ban employers from preventing their employees or their independent contractors after they're terminated from employment from working for another employer for a specific period of time, working within a geographic area, or working for another employer in a capacity that's not similar or that is similar to the employee's work for which that employer is is a party to the agreement. So obviously... uh, you can't prohibit them from going to work for another electrical contractor in the case of the members uh, that I'm speaking with today. Now, um, so those those non-competes will be banned. What the law did not do is uh, it didn't ban all types of agreements that are designed to protect employers' interests. So as an example, employers can still have confidentiality or what are referred to as non-disclosure agreements with their employees. So you can still protect information that you deem to be either a trade secret or confidential. And so you could have an agreement that restricts the ability of an employee to use a client or contact list. Additionally, what you can have is you can have essentially an agreement that prohibits employees from soliciting your customers. So non-solicitation agreements are still valid or will still be valid after July 1st. And then finally, oftentimes, uh, particularly in the electrical uh, industry, but in all industries, oftentimes uh, businesses, business owners are looking at selling their business. And oftentimes a buyer will ask that, hey, you know, if you're going to sell your business to me, I want to make sure that you're not competing against us. And so a non-compete agreement that is part of the sale of a business will still be valid and enforceable. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that non-competes uh, after, non, after July 1st, 
2023 will, will no longer be valid. Non-competes that were written prior to July 1st are still valid. So there's a grandfather provision that's built into this law. Essentially, you just can't have, you can't draft non-competes after July 1st of this year, but you could have a non-solicitation agreement. Also keep in mind that under this new law, the way it's written is that if an employer uh, seeks to have an employee sign a non-compete after July 1st and then seek to enforce uh, or require the employee to sign that band agreement, employees can seek attorney fees and seek injunctive relief in court. So there is some some teeth uh, in the law for employees if their employer tries to require them to sign an agreement after the fact. And that was the first topic that you had raised. Uh, but Mike, in addition, I would say that the question where I'm getting a lot or the issue I'm getting a lot of questions on really revolves around the earned safe and sick time leave. And employers are trying to sort through what does this mean and how do I comply and what have you. And so just to address some of the common questions that are raised within the industry. Number one, the earned safe and sick leave law takes effect January 1st of 2024. All employers are going to be required to comply with this law. And all employees who work at least 80 hours in a year are eligible to use the earned sick leave benefits. Now, keep in mind that the accrual for the earned safe and sick time begins immediately. So they earn one hour for every 30 hours worked up to 48 hours in a year upon commencement of employment. Now, a common question that has been asked is, well, what about salaried employees? How do they accrue time? And for salaried employees, uh, the law is written such that they will be deemed to have worked at least 40 hours per week unless their normal work week is less than 40 hours. And for most uh, salaried employees are working at least 40 hours a week. Other questions that are raised is, are employees allowed to carry over accrued and unused sick time? And the answer is absolutely. The law allows them to carry over accrued and unused earned safe and sick time. Now you can write your policies so that they can't carry over or, or accrue more than 80 hours at any given time. Now, sometimes employers may say, gee, I don't want the employees to carry over their earned safe and sick time. And what I suggest is if you're getting to that point, then, it, then it, it's gonna make sense for you to talk to legal counsel to properly draft your uh, earned safe and sick time policy, uh, because there are ways that you can do it. And that is that every year at the beginning of each year, the employee receives 48 hours of earned sick time at the beginning of the, the pay period, and then you pay out the unused time. Or you could have a policy where they receive 80 hours of earned safe and sick time at the beginning of the year, and the employee forfeits the unused time. But that's uh, something that you'd have to work with your legal counsel to, to properly draft. Also keep in mind that if you have a pay time off policy, you can draft your pay time off policy to comply with this safe and sick time law. And I know there's a number of contractors that are probably listening to this podcast that fall under 
municipal ordinances that require the urn safe and sick time, whether it's Minneapolis, St. Paul, Duluth, and by the way, soon to be Bloomington, if that's not on your listeners' radar, effective July 1st of this year for contractors or employers that are working within the city limits of the city of Bloomington, they're also required to provide urn safe sick time. Uh, and that's generally speaking the same one hour for every 30 hours worked up to 48 hours uh, per year. Now, the way this law, going back to the state law, the Earn Safe and Sick Time law, the way it is written is it is very broad as to why an employee can use either the Earn Sick Time or the Earn Safe Time leave. And I won't go into all the details with regard to when they could take the time off other than just to say that it's very comprehensive. And if somebody is sick, they can take the time off. And if they can't make it to work because of an emergency, they're probably going to be entitled to take the time off under the state earned safe and sick time law. Perhaps a more noble issue as it relates to the earned sick time leave is that employees will be eligible to take time off based upon uh, a family member. And family member is defined very broadly. And it can be someone you would normally consider to be a family member, which could be a child or a foster child. Uh, But it could also include an adult child. So they could take time off if their 40-year-old son or daughter is sick and they need to take time off to help that person. They can take time off for a spouse or a registered domestic partner. They can take time off for a sibling, a step-sibling, a foster sibling. They can take time off for a biological adoptive foster parent, a step-parent, or someone who uh, essentially stood in uh, as the employee's parent when they were a minor child. Take time off for a grandchild, a foster grandchild, a step-grandchild. In fact, the law is written so broadly that an individual can designate, or an employee, I should say, can designate one individual annually to be a family member. So Mike, uh, if I wanted to, I could designate you as my family member for the next year and let my employer know that, and I could take time off for the reasons set forth under the earned safe and sick time law. So it's very broadly drafted. This law is also written that you're going to have to provide, you're actually going to have to draft a policy to make it clear as to what the notice requirements are. If employees need to take time off, you can require them to take uh, or to give you at least seven days advance notice of the intention to use sick leave uh, unless it's unforeseeable. And then the employee has to give you as much notice as practical. But of course, the law is written such that If you have notice requirements, you have to have a written policy, and that written policy has to describe the notice requirements, and it has to be provided to the employees in advance of them taking time off. And of course, as the law is written, oftentimes questions are asked, well, can I ask for documentation uh, for the reasons why somebody needs time off? And uh, you can generally ask for some type of documentation if the leaves are more than three consecutive days. However, when you start talking about taking time off for a a care of a family member or in the case of somebody needing to take time off for safety leave, uh, for a family member, you can't require a doctor's note uh, that the person needs to take time off to care for a family member, uh, the employee providing a written notice. 
about the most you're going to be able to, to obtain. And then for somebody who needs to take time off for safety leave, getting a letter uh, from a victim services organization or police officers or an attorney, that's going to be more than sufficient for them to take uh, the required safety leave time off. Now, you can't retaliate against employees for using uh, earned safe and sick time. Not only are you going to be required to update your handbooks, um, but you're also going to have to post a notice uh, that you know, lets employees know that they're entitled to earn safe and sick time, how they accrue it, what the accrual year is. And because things aren't hard enough for employers, you're going to have to provide this notice not only in English, but in the employee's primary language. So there's uh, quite a bit tied into the earned safe and sick time leave policies. And the bottom line is employers have time to prepare uh, for this law. It takes effect, as I said earlier, January 1st, 2024. So you have uh, six and a half months to get prepared. Uh, certainly you're going to want to take a look at your paid time off policies uh, or if you have a vacation policy, you're going to want to update the vacation policy so that it becomes a paid time off policy and start to uh, think about how you're going to comply with this law. But there's, there's a lot here uh, with regard to this law. The last piece I'll mention is from an enforcement standpoint, I thought the interesting piece that not a lot of people are talking about is that the legislature has decided that they're going to give grants to what's referred to as, quote, community organizations, unquote, for the purpose of outreach and education. And of course, as a labor attorney, I read the community organizations as being unions uh, will be given grants for purposes of outreach and, and education. And um, so I think there's going to be a lot of activity for, on the union front as it relates uh, to this issue. Tom, that's a whole lot to digest. I, I can't believe it. I mean, that's, wow, we're going to see a lot of people redoing the handbook. So, well, others you'd like to talk about, hop in. Yeah, the others, and, I, and perhaps I could have started off with this one, and that is there's a new law that relates to wage protection in the construction industry. And I see that this is going to raise a lot of issues uh, in the electrical industry because uh, oftentimes you are a subcontractor on a project. Uh, but the way this wage protection law is written is essentially a contractor is assumed and liable for any unpaid wages, fringe benefits, and resulting liquidated damages that will be owed to a claimant or a third party acting on the claimant's behalf uh, by a subcontractor at any tier. So in essence, the way this law is written is if a subcontractor does not pay their employees the wages or the fringe benefits that are due and owing to the employees, the general contractor will be held responsible. And the law is written such that employers or generals or contractors cannot have agreements to indemnify or otherwise release um, uh, individuals from, from liability. But it doesn't prohibit you from 
as a contractor enforcing contractual provisions against a subcontractor for monetary damages incurred as a result of the contractor not paying the, the wages or the benefits. I see in the construction industry, one of the big issues that's going to arise out of this is oftentimes there are issues whether or not independent contractors were properly classified as independent contractors versus employees. And if a contractor has inappropriately misclassified uh, someone as an independent contractor when they truly are an employee, well, guess what? Uh, the subcontractor, but not only the subcontractor, but the general contractor will be responsible for any unpaid wages or fringe benefits that are due and owing under this law. Now, from an enforcement standpoint, uh, keep in mind that the law is written such that an individual who can claim unpaid wages, fringe benefits, or liquidated damages is referred to as a claimant. And so the claimant can be not only an employee, but it could be an independent contractor. Additionally, a claimant can designate any person, organization, or a union to file a complaint with the Department of Labor and Industry or in court on their behalf. And as I said before, contractors, whether you're a general or a subcontractor, you're going to be held jointly and severably liable for any unpaid wages, benefits, or other remedies that are available. This law is written that claims can be brought, generally speaking, within two years, unless it's a willful violation, and then it's three years. Where I see the big issue arising in the industry is what we're going to see, I believe, effective July 1st, is you're going to start seeing general contractors asking for the subcontractor to provide payroll records. And the payroll records have to be provided to the general contractor, and it needs to require, contain all the legally required information required in maintaining payroll records under state law. And those records must contain information that allow a contractor to see that there has been payment of wages and fringe benefits uh, that have been made to the employees. But if you're making contributions to third parties, such as a 401k plan, uh, those payroll records must contain that information. Essentially, the law is written that you're going to have to provide all your payroll information, and the only thing that you can redact is the employee's Social Security number. Now, and I think I may have misspoke. It actually takes effect August 1st, not July 1st. And it takes effect for all contracts or agreements entered into after August 1st, but it also impacts all contracts or agreements that are modified or amended after that date. So I believe that if you have entered into a change order, that change order will essentially be sufficient for the this new wage protection statute uh, to take effect and that you're going to have to provide your payroll records to, to the general. Also, um, and I can't make this up, but essentially there's an exemption and that exemption applies to contractors as well as subcontractors that are signatory to a collective bargaining agreement. In other words, uh, union contractors are not covered by this law, provided that the collective bargaining agreement contains a grievance procedure uh, that allows employees to recover unpaid wages, which 
most, if not all, collective bargaining agreements have that provision and also provides for a provision for uh, the unions or the fringe funds to collect unpaid contributions to the fringe benefit funds. And again, I'm not aware of any collective bargaining agreements in the building trades that don't have that provision. Now, keep in mind that uh, if you perform prevailing wage projects, this new wage protection law does not apply because essentially you already have the Department of Labor and Industry that's policing compliance with the many Davis-Bacon law. So I, I see this wage protection law having a significant impact upon contractors uh, in the construction industry. Well, Tom, I tell you, it's uh, it's deep. It's a lot to absorb. Uh, I think the legal industry in Minnesota will be pretty busy coming up to speed on it, doing their part on it. Uh, I really kind of look forward to the changes. I think they're great. Here's a basic question some of our listeners may be curious about. If a contractor were interested in learning more about these laws and made directly how they may directly impact their business or needs legal guidance, what should they do? Well, certainly they should reach out to their legal counsel and that person should be able to provide them advice and guidance with regard to how they comply. Uh, certainly, if they don't have legal counsel, I'd be more than happy to assist them in ensuring that they are compliant. And I'll also note, because I know a lot of contractors uh, do like to try to keep up to speed with regard to the changes in the law, a lot of information is posted on the Department of Labor and Industry website. They are also putting on webinars on uh, some of these upcoming changes, but I certainly believe that you should be working with legal counsel to ensure that you're compliant because there's a lot of information here and a lot of things that have occurred in this last legislative session, including you know, what, what we haven't talked about is the recreational marijuana in the workplace and how that ha has such a significant impact on how you're going to conduct drug and alcohol testing in Minnesota. And I'll leave it at the law is written such that individuals who are in safety-sensitive positions, which I think a lot of electricians, for obvious reasons, are in a safety-sensitive position, there's probably not going to need to be much of a change with regard to your drug and alcohol testing policies. But when you start talking about individuals in non-safety-sensitive positions, such as somebody who works in the home office, uh, your policy as it relates to drug and alcohol testing is going to have to change and, and change uh, fairly significantly. Okay. Well, that certainly makes sense that that would be the case. Uh, it's it's amazing some of how these laws are changing. Tom, while you were talking, I, I mentioned or I, I came up with a question that's certainly not that when you mentioned something, you've never seen so many laws change in the in the benefit of the employer or excuse me, employees, I'd like to ask you this. Is this something that was possibly a result of a, a Democratic House and Senate that was working together for the good of the people? Or is it is it something that was just time to come? Or is there anything we can attribute this or any correlation to what's going on in government? Why there was so many significant changes for the employee this time? Yeah, great question, Mike. And but frankly, some of these items have been on the wish list for the Democrat legislatures for quite some time. And so as far as the number of changes that were made, I don't think, certainly I wasn't surprised by the changes. 
What I was surprised by is more the number of changes that were made. And in part, the reason I was surprised is I don't believe that the Democrats were given a mandate by the Minnesotans uh, to make all of these changes. And I've seen um, some recent statistics that a fair number of Minnesotans believe that the Democrats overreached in this legislative session. And when you think about just uh, from a political standpoint, they had a one-seat advantage in the Senate and close to that in the House, as I recall. And I think they operated as if they had a mandate uh, when I don't think because the election was so close that they actually had a mandate. But the changes that came about, these were, you know, a lot of these items were bills that have been raised in, in past legislative sessions. Now, Mike, before I forget, you know, one thing that I want to mention, because I know we have a lot of small contractors that listen to these podcasts, and there was one other notable change that I want to make sure is on the listeners' minds, and that is effective July 1st of this year, uh, the definition of an employer for purposes of parental leave, school leave, and sick leave is changing. And it's changing from it used to be uh, that it applied to employers with more than 21 employees. And now the law will impact all employers, regardless of the number of employees that they have. And in addition, even if you're an employer that had more than 21 employees, the law is changing uh, such that an employee is no longer considered someone who has worked for you for at least 12 months and has worked at least uh, one half the full-time equivalent in order to be eligible for parental leave, school leave, and sick leave, but rather now it includes all employees, no matter how much time they have worked for you. And essentially what that means is for all employers effective July 1st, they must now provide unpaid leaves of absence to an employee who is uh, the biological or adoptive parent in conjunction with the birth of, or adoption of a child, a female employee for prenatal care or incapacity due to pregnancy, childbirth, or a related health condition. And employees will be entitled to up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. And of course, they can use paid time off to the extent they have it. But it's a big change in the sense of now all employees, even somebody who has just hired, will be entitled to up to 12 weeks of leave uh, for what's referred to as parental leave. Additionally, when it comes to school leave, all employees, no matter how long they work for you, will be entitled to a total of 16 hours of school leave uh, during a 12-month period of time for them to attend school conferences and school-related activities. And again, that's unpaid time off that certainly they can use any paid time off that they have. And then Finally, to the extent that employers have personal sick leave benefits, they need to allow all their employees to use those benefits, not only for themselves, but also for a child, for an adult child, a spouse, a sibling, parent-in-law, mother-in-law, father-in-law, and the list goes on. And that change also takes effect July 1st of 2023. And of course, when it comes to the sick leave benefits, a lot of that's going to be addressed by when the new earned safe and sick time leave takes effect 
January 1st of 2024. But it's a, it's a huge issue uh, for smaller contractors that really are going to now have to manage uh, time off for new employees or for employees uh, where they haven't provided that time off or certainly not provided 12 weeks of, of time off in the case of parental leave. Tom, your knowledge and perspective has been formidable and most helpful to electrical contractors who need to stay on top of changing laws, as you've clearly indicated. And so another program draws to a close. I would like to thank our guest, Tom Revenue, a principal in the law firm of Peters, Revenue, Kappenman, and Anderson, for taking time out of his busy schedule to share with our listeners information about changes in labor law from the 2024 session. Thank you, Tom. Are there any final messages you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, thanks again, Mike. Thanks uh, to the Electrical Association for having me today for this podcast. As uh, as we've discussed, there's a lot of information here. We just touched on, you know, essentially it's the tip of the iceberg as some of the topics that I've covered. Feel free, if you've listened in on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Send me an email. Give me a call. I'm certainly happy to answer your questions. And certainly if you let me know that you participated in this podcast, uh, I would treat the, uh, the initial conversation as a, as a courtesy as a member of the Electrical Association. Thanks again for having me today. Well, thank you again, Tom. It's really been enlightening. I would like to thank our executive producer, Katie Grams, for her work behind the scenes to make this podcast happen. Also, a big thank you to Federated Insurance, who sponsored this presentation. With that, I wish you all safe travel until we can join us again for another Electrical Association Sparkin' Conversations. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Good day. Sparkin' Conversations was a production of the Electrical Association. For more information, visit www.electricalassociation.com.